Father, as we come to your word today, we remember that your word is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is sufficient for giving us principles for daily living, that it confronts us, that it convicts us, and it instructs us. And so we put this time apart, aside, for those purposes, Lord, that your word would guide us, that it would instruct us, that it would confront us and convict us if necessary, that we would live lives that are pleasing to you for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We're actually going to be in Matthew chapter 25 today, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 24. If you're here last week, uh, you might remember that we briefly talked about, or we, we, uh, we started the, the message off last week by talking about how uncomfortable people tend to get when you talk about certain things like money or death or politics or religion. And then we covered a passage that mixed two of those, uh, two of those elements, money and religion. And so uh, in light of that, I figure we may as well just keep things rolling and, and uncomfortable, and we'd start off today by talking about death while we're on a roll and making people uncomfortable. What is it about death that makes people uncomfortable? What is it about death that lands that subject on the list of, of things that people get antsy and uncomfortable about? I would say that it's probably, in, in the minds of, of most people, it's probably just the uncertainty of what, if, if anything, will be on the other side of death's door. Um, of course, there is, but most people have not even thought about what might be there. Most people don't want to talk about death. They don't want to think about what's on the other side of death. But most people who do believe in some type of afterlife, and most people who believe in, in some type of afterlife, whether it's a, a Christian, you know, comes from a Christian worldview or, or not, but most people who believe that there is an afterlife believe that something good is waiting for them on the other side of death. I mean, think about it. We see actors and rock and roll musicians who lived the most ungodly lives that you can possibly imagine. And when they die, we see scores of people saying things like, rest in peace. And as Christians, we of all people know that somebody who does not profess Christ, somebody who is not a Christian, somebody who shows no evidence of salvation, is not going to rest in peace. The fact of the matter is that very few people who do believe in an afterlife, would be inclined to believe that anything worse than this life could possibly be waiting for them on the other side after death. People know when they're forced to think about their lives, when they're forced to consider their lives, they know that they deserve judgment. All you have to do is ask the right questions. People instinctively know that they deserve judgment. And yet, most people hold to a view of God that boils down to the idea that God is all love and God would never judge, God would never condemn anyone. But when the issue is pressed, when you really start asking questions and digging deep, everybody believes that this is a moral universe. That is, this is a universe in which certain things are always absolutely right and certain things are always absolutely wrong wrong. Now, if you were to ask somebody who initially disagrees with that statement, if they think that it would be absolutely wrong to torture them until they agree, I have no doubt that their answer would be yes. That would be absolutely wrong. And if their answer initially isn't yes, trust me, it eventually would be. The truth is, we do live in a moral universe. Certain things are always right. And certain things are always wrong. And while it might be up to, to you to discover which is which, to discover what's right, to discover what's wrong, it is never, ever up to you to decide what is right and what is always wrong. No, God alone determines what is good. God alone determines what is evil. And His judgments are non-negotiable. They're not up for debate. 
And so we have to understand that because we do live in a moral universe, there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day of judgment when God rewards what is good and when He punishes what is evil. As Christians, we wait in great hope and anticipation of that day. In the meantime, we live in an evil world in which good deeds are not always rewarded. Sometimes they're punished. And bad deeds are not always punished. In our world, the righteous often suffer and the wicked often prosper. But for each side, the righteous and the wicked, it's only temporary. It's only on this side of death. And so the righteous eagerly await the day when Christ returns to judge the nations in righteous and just judgment, don't we? And that explains why the disciples were so eager to know when Jesus was going to do all these things that He was prophesied He would do. When would He return? When would He judge the nations? They wanted to know. And He promised throughout His ministry that He would. That He would be back. Five times in a very short span, Jesus responds to His disciples when they're asking Him when He's going to return by saying, no one knows. If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 36. He says, But concerning that day, the day of judgment, the day of of reckoning, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Look down at verse 42. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Look at verse 44. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Look at verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. And it is amazing in light of this stuff that these books sell in which people are are giving dates. People are saying, you know, this is when he's coming back. Millions and millions and millions of these books have been sold because we're missing this. That leads us right into chapter 25 where Jesus tells the parable of the ten bridesmaids, which concludes with that very point being driven home as part of the point, at least part of the point, of the parable. Look at verse 13 in chapter 25. Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We covered that parable several months ago, the parable of the ten bridesmaids. The point was that true faith watches. True faith watches for the return of Christ. They were to faithfully and expectantly wait and watch. But that brings us to the parable of the hidden talent. And the point of this parable, while it overlaps a little bit with the parable of the ten bridesmaids, the point of this parable is entirely different. The point of this parable is that true faith prompts us, yes, to watch and wait. That's the parable of the bridesmaids. But it also prompts us to work. To work. The point of the passage from Genesis that we covered last week was that everything, everything, every single aspect of our lives, our jobs, our marriage, our homes, our possessions, everything we have should be aimed towards serving and glorifying God. And this parable that we're going to look at today drives the very same point home for us. The parable of the hidden talents is found in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. The main point is that God has called us and enabled us to work as a means of serving and glorifying Him until the day that Christ returns or calls us home through death's door. So let me read the parable to you. I'll just read the whole thing to you, and we'll dissect it and, and take a look at what it's telling us. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Jesus says, immediately after telling the parable of the bridesmaids, immediately after, next verse, verse 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had the two, and he also who had the talents, the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will, be give, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the, the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a pretty straightforward parable, isn't it? It's straightforward, and yet, if we isolate it from its context, it's a little bit hard to arrive at the right conclusion. It can look like Jesus is teaching a works-based salvation. But here's a spoiler alert. He's not. He's not. So the parable is fairly straightforward. The story, at least, is straightforward. A man, a master, is going on a journey, and this man represents, who do you think? Christ. He represents Christ. And the servants represent people who claim to belong to Christ. And before the man leaves, before this master leaves, he entrusts each one of these three servants with what are referred to as talents. And it's interesting, the English word talent is actually derived from this parable. It's, it comes from this parable. What's a, what's a talent in our language? It's a, it's a skill, right? Or, or it's an ability. And so the idea is that any skill or any ability with which we have been blessed ultimately comes from the Lord. It's not yours. Any skill... Any ability you have, it is ultimately given to you by God. And there will be a day of reckoning when He looks at what you've done with it. Every skill, every ability, He has merely entrusted you with it for the sake of using it to glorify God and to serve God. And by the way, I might add, every single breath is an ability. Now, talent isn't or wasn't a type of currency per se. Instead, it's a measure of weight. Uh, usually a pretty heavy amount of weight. If you remember um, the, the, the huge menorah that was in the tabernacle, uh, Exodus 25:39 tells us that it was made of one talent of, of pure gold. So a Greek talent weighed about 60 pounds. Uh, a Roman talent weighed about 70 pounds. Pretty heavy. And these talents uh, wouldn't have been mixed metals. These, these talents would have been pure gold or pure silver. So obviously, while they weren't currency exactly. Each one was worth a lot of money. Each one by itself would have been worth an absolute fortune. So each of the servants is given a certain amount of talents. Jesus says to one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. And this is the important part. To each according to his ability. To each according to his ability. And so understanding that, the indication is that the master knew what their skill level was. He knew what kind of people these were. He knew what their abilities were. And so he uses what he knows about them to determine how much to entrust each servant. So one gets five, one gets two, and the third one gets one based on what the master knows about them, based on their abilities. And as soon as the man leaves on this indefinite journey, the first two servants immediately 
start working. They start doing something with what they've been entrusted with. Here's the thing. They don't know how much time they have. Because in the ancient world, if you were going on a journey, it wasn't like today where you've got an itinerary with dates and times and you know, all sorts of things broken down where it's really, you know exactly where you're going to be and when unless something goes very wrong. No, in the ancient world, you kind of just, you got there when you got there, you took care of business, and you came back, and you came back whenever you came back. So the servants didn't know when the master will return in the same way that we don't know when Christ will return. And we learn that the man who was entrusted with five talents, he, he, he doubles it, right? He makes five more. The man who was entrusted with two talents makes two more. But the third man doesn't do anything with what he's entrusted with. He doesn't work to increase it. He doesn't work to do anything with it. Instead, he, he does nothing with it. He buries it instead of using it. In other words, he did nothing to honor or serve or please his master. Instead, he took advantage of the fact that his master was going to be on this indefinite journey. He took advantage of the fact that he's gone and he's just doing whatever he wants to do. He's, he's living for himself. He is, in his mind, he is his own master. He's going to live his life however he wants while his master is gone, rather than living and doing work for the master. And we'd say, well, is that really so wrong? That really doesn't seem that bad, does it? I mean, it, it, it's only one talent. I mean, what if he would have lost it? Then, then the master really would have been mad, right? He didn't want to lose it. So maybe in, in that sense, we're tempted to sympathize with him. Maybe in that sense, we're, we're tempted to think that it would have made sense to bury this talent in the ground. But the reality is that there is an implied expectation here. And we must not forget that the master only gave him one because he knew that servant's character and that servant's faithfulness and that servant's ability. And so finally, the master returned. The day of reckoning and settling accounts came, according to verse 19. And the man who had been entrusted with five and, and gained five, doubled it, he hears the same thing. This is, this is very important too. He hears the exact same thing from the master that the man who was entrusted with two and gained two heard. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the one who gained more doesn't get higher honors, doesn't get a, a, a higher commendation from the master than the one who gained two. And that's exactly how Christ will judge one day. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, each one will receive his wages according to his labor. According to his labor. Not according to the results of what you do, but according to your work. According to what you do with what you have, not over the results. He doesn't say that each one will receive his wages according to the results. He doesn't hold you responsible for the results of your labor of advancing the gospel because ultimately God is the one who has to open a person's eyes and impart life to them through the Holy Spirit. So he's looking at what you do with what you have. He's looking at your labor He's looking at your effort. He's looking at your motivation. So when we see the third man who'd been entrusted with one talent, there's an indication that he was the sluggard. He was a sluggard to begin with. And the master knew it. That's why he was only entrusted with one talent. Only, right? This 70-pound thing of gold. Only one. And his response, when it comes his time to settle accounts, and to be considered. His response is to immediately deflect any scorn, any condemnation, any judgment that might rightfully have fallen squarely on his shoulders. And he deflects it upon whom? Back at the Master. Accusing the Master of being cruel. Accusing the Master of being an unethical man. And even if the accusations were true, and they weren't, it doesn't excuse the man's refusal 
to use what had been entrusted to him for the master's gain. Even if the accusations are true, it didn't prevent these other two men from working and gaining for their master. And if the accusations are true, think about it. If those accusations are true and the master is cruel and unethical and and just a hard man, doesn't it seem reasonable to say that refusing to work for him is like the last thing that you would want to do? Think about it. If he had really thought these things were true about the master, he would have put the talent in the bank where he at least would have gained interest, as the master points out. So fear isn't what prevented the man from doing something with his talent. So what was? Faithlessness was. Faithlessness was. And so the judgment that the man receives is righteous. It's, it's, a, it's a just judgment. The Master says, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What place is he describing? Hell. He's describing hell. Now, now here's what we need to understand. The man isn't sent into the outer darkness for not working. See, that that was just a symptom. Refusing to work was a symptom of something deeper within him. It was a symptom of faithlessness. See, if you don't have a saving faith, it it shows, it it plays out in your life in the same way that if you do, you you bear good fruit. So refusing to work was just a symptom of this man's faithlessness. Faithlessness is the reason that he receives this sentence. And so we have to understand that, conversely, the two men who, who uh, received the commendation of their master and entered into the joy of their master, they had faith. And their faith is what drove them. Their faith is what motivated them to work. Just like the faithlessness of the third man prevented him from working, motivated his lack of work. And so the third man is an illustration of someone who is an unbeliever. And not just an unbeliever, but a false professor. Because he thinks he's a servant, but he's not. He's not only disobedient to the Master, he is rebellious against the Master. He hates the Master. It's not just ambivalence. It is hatred that he has toward the Master. And thus he has no interest in working in obedience for the glory or for the service or for the gain of his Master. Now if we were to just yank this parable out and isolate it from its context, if we don't take the element of faith that was clearly established in the parable of the ten bridesmaids, which, remember, was told immediately before this one, it would look like Jesus is teaching a works-based salvation. But He's not. It'll look like the two men who enter into their master's joy and who receive their master's commendation did so because they, they worked, because they did something, so they earned something. They deserved their reward. That's what it might look like on the surface if we don't consider it in its context. And conversely, it looks like the man who was sent into the outer darkness was sent there for not working. And so this parable does open a little bit of a a can of worms, so to speak. But we have to understand that when the entirety of Scripture is taken into consideration, there are multiple, multiple other passages which collect all the worms and seal them right back up in that can. There's not a can of worms here. It's clear. Scripture makes it very clear. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. See, when we take both of these parables into consideration, the parable of the the ten bridesmaids and then this parable, in addition to the one that follows this one, which is the parable of the separation of the sheep and goats, we understand that this is about what kind of faith God recognizes and saves us through. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but what kind of faith is that? We're not saved by a faith that's complacent. We're not saved by a faith that is 
ambivalent about the matters of God. We're not saved by a faith that is sluggish. We're not saved by a faith that is disobedient. We're not saved by a faith that is just blasé when it comes to honoring and serving and glorifying the Master. The type of faith that faithfully watches and waits for the day of the Lord is a faith that works. Now, this is something that we need to make sure that we are just super crystal clear on. Because the doctrine of sola fide, which is faith alone, is under attack in our day and age, perhaps as it hasn't been under attack since the Reformation. It was one of the the great doctrines that was recovered in the Reformation. You may have noticed, although the library's been moved to the back room, but before it was, I removed every book in the library that was written by one, uh, somebody who's traditionally been one of my favorite authors, John Piper. And so, maybe if you're wondering why I would remove his books, let me first say that I understand that there are a lot of people who love John Piper, and if you've read his, his earlier works, some of his earlier works are fantastic. Some of his works have changed my life. Don't Waste Your Life is, is a book that shook me to my core and, and, and changed my life. And so I understand that there might be people who will be triggered by the fact that I would dare throw shade at John Piper, that I would dare criticize him. But John Piper recently started preaching a false gospel. Just recently. Just recently. He now teaches, and you can find clips on YouTube, he now teaches that we are not justified, we are not declared eternally righteous by God, we are not welcomed by God as sons and daughters by faith alone. He now teaches that we are not justified through faith alone. In a blog written uh, earlier this year, uh, September 25th, titled, does, does God Really Save Us by Faith Alone? This is what he writes in his denial of the doctrine of faith alone. He says, quote, In final salvation at the last judgment, faith is confirmed by the sanctifying fruit it has borne, and we are saved through that fruit and that faith. We are saved, he says, through the fruit, through our works, and that faith. End quote. And friends, that is heresy. That is dead wrong. It is, it's a distortion of the gospel that confuses and, and convolutes justification. Justification is the present declaration of a future judgment. Not guilty, right? It confuses Justification with sanctification. Sanctification is God's work in us to break us free from the power of sin, and that takes place through the course of the Christian journey. Friends, if you are justified, you are not justified by works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, period. And yet, make no mistake about it, if you are justified... If you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, your faith will produce good works. You will bear fruit to the glory of God. And if your faith does not produce good fruit to the glory of God, your faith is a dead faith, and you have no biblical assurance of your justification. Now this is a very important question. What kind of works? How much? What, 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 is, what does the Bible mean when, when it says stuff like this? I'd say I believe that it starts with a good work like repentance. And it always includes confession of sin and submission to the will of God to some varying degree. To some degree. Any degree of submission unto, unto God is a good work. But nobody, not One person who continues in steadfast, adamant, unwavering disobedience has justifying faith. If you continue to look just like the world, if you continue to act just like the world, if you continue loving all the things that the world loves without any 
even the smallest degree of a hint of departure from the broad road, there is no reason to think or to believe that you are not still on the broad road. So let's be crystal clear about this. You are not saved by works. But you are saved for works. And saving faith produces works. And James, James makes that abundantly clear. That's one of the main themes in the book of James. If you look at James chapter 2, James covers this thoroughly. He makes it very clear that justifying faith must bear fruit. It must work. Listen to what he says in verses 14 to 17. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 say this. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James gives us kind of an illustration. He gives us this hypothetical scenario, right? Let's say you become aware of a brother or sister in Christ who is in poverty. They can't afford uh, the, the basic necessities in life, never mind luxuries. And you become aware of this person's condition. And he's, he's saying, James is saying that if your attitude is basically, God bless you, be filled, be at peace. It's your problem now. I've prayed for you. You should be very very concerned that you've got a faith that will be absolutely worthless to you, that, it will, you'll, that you have a faith that will be of no value to you on the day of the Lord. Let's look at verses 18 to 20 of James. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? The point that he's making here, over and over in this chapter, James chapter 2, the point that he's making is that true, saving, justifying faith will be made evident by works, by fruit. True, saving faith will change the trajectory the tra- trajectory of your life. Your life will be shaken so deeply to the core that the things that you wouldn't have done, the generosity that you wouldn't have had before, you will have now. The works that you never would have done before, like confessing and repenting, you, you never would have done those prior to Christ, but you will now. True saving faith must change your life. It must change your thinking. It must change your values. If you persist in darkness, in wickedness, in sin, without even a hint of a change of direction or repentance, yours is a worthless, useless faith. And why is it useless? Why is it worthless? Because it's not a saving faith. It's a faith that will land a person, a faith that will land a fool in hell, in the outer darkness. James ends the the second chapter by giving us an illustration. Listen to what he says in verse 26. He says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, so think of it this way, James says. How do you know if, if a body is dead? Because it doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't have a pulse. It doesn't breathe. It, it doesn't do anything. It just lays there and does absolutely nothing. Conversely, how do you know if a body is alive? It's got a pulse. person's breathing. There, there, there are signs of, of life there. It does something. It, it moves. It breathes. And so in the same way, James says, a faith that does not move, a faith that does not work, is a dead, useless faith. Now, whenever you talk about the the importance or, or the necessity of works, 
it's almost inevitable that somebody will bring up the thief who hung on the cross beside Jesus. We would say, well, his hands were bound. He couldn't do any good works, right? I mean, his, his hands are bound. His, his feet are bound. What's he supposed to do? What could he have done? He didn't work, did he? And I would say he's actually perhaps the best illustration in all of Scripture of somebody who did work. Somebody who did demonstrate the works of saving faith. His faith produced the good works of repentance and of a public confession of Christ. And he recognized and he submitted to the authority of Christ on the spot. Luke 23.42 says this, and he said, that is the, the thief, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That, that is a faith that did everything it possibly could. It's a faith that worked. It bore the fruit of repentance. It bore the fruit of public profession. It bore the fruit of submission to Christ. His hands were bound. His feet were bound. But his tongue was free. And for the first time in his life, so was his heart. This is what justifying faith does. It does what it can. And so we are not saved by faith and works. We're saved by a faith that works. As the great reformer Martin Luther once said in, in his commentary on Galatians, he said, quote, Christians are not made righteous in doing righteous things, but being now made righteous by faith in Christ, they do righteous things. End quote. So it's, we want to make sure that we don't put the, the cart before the horse. Faith produces good works. We aren't justified by our works, but if there are no works that accompany our profession of faith, our faith is not a justifying faith. And we are not Christians. See, the man who had been entrusted with just one talent wasn't judged because he didn't gain as much as the men who were welcomed into their master's joy. He was judged because he had no faith. And his lack of faith led him to do nothing with what he had for the benefit of the master. The idea then is that if he had true saving faith, he would have used what he had for the honor and for the glory of the master. He's condemned because he didn't have faith. And his lack of faith was sufficient to make the case for his condemnation because it stirred him, it motivated into a self-indulgent complacency when it came to pleasing his master. Now this is something that we do need to be very, very careful about. It would be easy peasy for us to just start examining and, and looking at the lives of others, even accusing someone of burying their proverbial talent, so to speak. And there is a place for looking at the lives of others. Jesus did say uh, of, of false prophets, you'll recognize them by their fruits. There will be bad stuff in their life that, that should set off red flags for you. But we must find the balance between what Jesus said there and what Paul said in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 14, verse 4 says this. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so the balance, I believe, between these two positions, the balance is found in recognizing that we do have the right to judge a person's actions as being sinful or, or not. After all, exercising church discipline is one of the main purposes of the church, as Jesus commands. But we don't have the right to judge somebody's eternal destination. We don't have the right to judge somebody's heart, somebody's soul. Because only God, only God sees the depths of the heart and judges correctly, judges righteously, judges justly. 
Only God can do that. Nevertheless, we do have the obligation and the right to refute doctrinal error. We have the right to remove someone from our fellowship when they are unrepentant in their sin. We're instructed to admonish one another, encouraging one another to do good deeds. But Scripture is not ambiguous. It is extremely clear on this issue that we never ever have the right to pronounce any type of final judgment on another person. And while it's true that we must exercise grace and discernment with others, the Scriptures instruct us very differently when it comes to our own lives. See, it's very important that we spend way more time examining ourselves than examining the lives of others. It is so important that we examine ourselves rigorously, regularly, and rightly. How do we do that? What What do we measure ourselves up against? What makes something that we do either right or wrong? Here's what you don't do. You don't compare yourself to others. You don't say, well, so-and-so is doing this, or you know, so-and-so is doing that. We, must, we, can't, we can't develop the attitude that whatever we're doing must be okay because so-and-so is doing it. The question is, what saith the Lord? What does God say? What does His Word say? That's always, always, always the standard measurement that we must apply to ourselves. It's like a mirror that we must hold up to ourselves. Rigorous, what Scripture says, measuring ourselves by what Scripture says, is going to be erroneous. And one of the lessons that we gather from this parable is an important one. And that is that there are no excuses. There are no excuses. In the parable of the ten bridesmaids, they come up with an excuse, don't they? They don't have enough oil in their lamps and they've got all kinds of excuses. Right? We didn't, we didn't know that we should have had more oil for our oil lamps. Never mind the fact that they should have known. Because some people did. Five of them did. And so, when they get locked out at the wedding feast toward the end of the parable and they start saying, Lord, Lord, let us in. What does the bridegroom say to them? He says, I never knew you. There's no excuse for faithlessness. Likewise, in this parable, the man who is entrusted with one talent, he comes up with a a barrage of excuses. Master, you're, you're a hard man. You're an unethical man. You're a cruel man. You reap where you don't sow. I was afraid, so I buried the talent. And of course, that's all a lie. As the Master points out, saying, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. People have made excuses for sin ever since the garden, right? I mean, what did Adam do? Adam says, it's, it's the woman that you gave me. He's blaming God and the woman, and she says, it's the serpent that made me do it. Everybody's coming up with excuses. Everybody's blaming somebody else. And people make excuses to this very day when it comes to justifying all sorts of sin. We even have Christians who who make up excuses for their disobedience, don't we? Think about it. We we have people who, who will say, well, I'm a product of my environment. Or I was born this way. If God made me this way, I I I have to act in accordance with the way He made me, right? No, you have a sinful nature that's going to lead you astray. No, you don't just follow your heart. People will say, you know, I, I know that God saved me, so I don't have to take care of a poor brother or sister in the Lord. I can just give them this superficial blessing. Be warm. God bless you. Now go away. And God will still love me. And God will forgive me because I have grace. To use James's example. Or just as bad, you have people who affirm God's sovereignty, which is a good thing, right? But they'll affirm it too much. They'll affirm it to such an extent that they neglect human responsibility. They'll say, hey, you know, I don't need to tell so-and-so about the gospel because God is sovereign and God will tell them. If God's going to save this person, 
God's going to save them, and I'm just going to step out of the way. So you see how they're using the sovereignty of God as an excuse for disobedience? Not evangelizing? Never mind the fact that God not only determines the outcome, He determines the means to the outcome. His Word clearly teaches that we are to preach the Gospel and that faith comes by hearing. Paul says this in Romans 3.19, and I'll close with this. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Every mouth may be stopped. No excuses. Everything in life is to be used for the glory of God. And you can make excuses with your parents. You can make excuses with your spouse. You can make excuses with your pastor. Not that anybody's ever done that, right? You can even make excuses with yourself. But nobody is going to have any excuses when they stand before the Lord. Every mouth will be silent. Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And there's never been a person on the face of the earth who has ever had any idea when that was going to happen. So the second somebody says that they do have an idea, turn them off. Close the book. It's baloney. They're just giving you garbage. Nobody has ever had any idea, not even Jesus, had any idea when this was going to happen, but it is going to happen. Jesus is going to return. And when He does return, He should find His people faithfully stewarding their resources in obedience to their primary purpose in life. Serving and glorifying God and advancing the Gospel message relentlessly. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ for good works which He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So those good works, you're you're not alone. God has foreordained those good works to be done by you. Maybe you've realized today that you've made one excuse after another before the Lord. Maybe you've thought about your life and you've realized that your faith isn't producing good works, like repentance and confession especially. Maybe you realize that there's an aspect of your life that you have not brought under the Lordship of Christ. That you're not using to glorify God. And maybe you see that nothing that you have ultimately really belongs to you. In any of these cases, you are correct if you've realized that apart from God's grace, if you do not have God's grace, you stand condemned before God with no excuses and that every sin, whether it's a sin of commission or a sin of omission, something you've done or something you haven't done, must have God's wrath poured out upon it. It must be punished. But the good news of the Gospel is that there's a substitute. You can pay that debt, but there's a substitute. The good news of the Gospel is that Christ who knew no sin took the sins of His people upon Himself. Our sins were imputed to Him. They were legally transferred to Him. And He bore the Father's wrath against them as our substitute in the place of everyone who will repent and place saving faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. Every single one of us sins. Every single one of us is lost without grace. Every single one of us deserves to be thrown into the outer darkness. But God has promised that if we will turn to Christ in saving faith and confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And so I implore you this morning to examine your life rigorously, regularly and rightly and that you would strive to use every resource you have 
everything that has been entrusted to you for the glory of God. That you too may hear on the day of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we've had. And we thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. And Lord, as we examine ourselves, we ask that you would give us a clear understanding of just how desperately lost we are apart from your grace, apart from Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for the good works that he did on our behalf. And we confess in our hearts that we have failed and that we have failed continuously to uphold your standards. We confess in our hearts, in the silence of our hearts, that we have sinned against you and that all we deserve is wrath. We confess to you that we are not good people, but by your grace, you have renewed us. Through our faith, you have justified us. And so give us stronger faith. Give us faith that works. Entrust with us what you will and give us the wisdom to use it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.